All right, our text for today comes out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 to 9, but I want to start going back to verse 4. And it starts, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, I want to recap where we've been as we're in this passage. It's such an incre- one of the greatest passages anywhere found in Scripture. But the series title that we are in is called Living and Loving Like Jesus in a Post-Christian World. And, and you're to see more and more of why that title is there as we continue into this text. But the first chapter where we spent the first few weeks was in chapter 1 was the doxology that's explained where it's this, this passage of worship, this extended passage from 3 all the way down to verse 14. And this, this passage where he's talking about the, who Christ is and all that he's done for us. And we worship Christ. And, and it talks about the need for the, the, the Ephesians, now their identity is in Christ. They don't have to run after other things for value or worth. That everything is found in Christ. That he's a adopted them into his family, and then as you get towards the end of the chapter, it talks about Christ has been raised from the dead, and that now he has been seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all, all names and powers and anything that can be named in this age or in the age to come, and it finishes on this huge crescendo of who Christ is and all that he's done. And then chapter 2 we enter into, and it goes from the heights of, of, of glory and wonder to the depths of man's despair and depravity, and it begins by saying, remember, all of you were dead. All of you are deserving of God's wrath. Every one of you was following Satan and pursuing things of the world that was worthless. And as a result, every one of you is deserving of wrath. So it goes from the top of the glory of Jesus to then verse 1 through 3 of this chapter talking about the depths of man's depravity and that man has no hope on his own apart from Christ. And then he gets into this incredible passages where he talks about the fact that that we were dead without hope and it's quite a shocking contrast that he makes because paul is saying that we were not just sick and need a doctor but we were dead and we need a savior it's not sickness he's talking about and and paul makes this crystal clear in fact shannon hammered this pretty well last week when he was preaching and i just want to recap a little bit of what he said because it's so central for where we're going today because if we don't get this beginning part, well, the rest of it doesn't really make sense. And, and, and last week, Shannon quoted from, from Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And this passage is a crazy text where Paul says this in Romans, 10, or Romans chapter 3. He says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have been together. They, sorry, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So Paul is combining all these passages together and emphasizing again and again that without God, we have no hope. And then he says this in verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, their poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. It's amazing what Paul does here, he does what what no pastor is ever supposed to do, and that is he grabs all these passages from the Psalms and mashes them all together to show all these body parts and things of how everything's sinning. I mean, in this one section, he quotes from Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, Proverbs 1, Jeremiah 5, and he just mashes little sections of these passages all together because what he's saying is their mouths, their tongues, their lips, their feet, everything about them 
is filled with sin. He's saying from the, literally from the tops of their head to the bottom of their feet, everything is corrupt because of sin and they are without hope. And that's what he emphasizes here in the beginning of Ephesians. That we are without hope apart from Jesus. That we are not just sick and need a doctor, but we are dead and we need a Savior. And so often people would say, you know, I'm not really that bad. I just need maybe a little bit of help. Love it. Tim Keller says, we're not sick in our sins, but we are dead in our sins. Because sickness comes in degrees, and we can always justify it in the gray of how sickness works. But, but Paul isn't comparing sin to sickness or cancer. We're not limited because of sin, or not 100%, or we can do some things and maybe not others in our sin. He says, even though that's how, how many people consider sin to be today, that they compare their sin to others, or they say, you know, I'm not that bad, I, I just got a little cough, I, I'm going to be okay. I don't need a savior, I just need to fix a couple little areas of my life and I'll be fine. Maybe I need a bit of help, but just a little bit of help, and I can do the rest on my own. I'm going to be okay. I don't need a savior. I just need maybe some medicine or some herbal tea or some miracle, uh, what is it, essential oils that will, will, I always joke with my mom, do you have more unicorn uh, horns for me today to be able to use, right? Like, whatever it is, I just need a little bit to get me by. And that's how we think, that we're okay, just got a little bit of problems. But that's not what Paul says. He says, no, you are dead in your sin. And if you're dead, you can't do anything. You don't need a doctor when you're dead. You don't need Miracle Max. If you know that great film, I want to show this clip from it. Princess Bride. Probably owes your money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead, he can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. All right. We aren't mostly dead, right? Miracle Max can't help us. If so, we could do something to help ourselves. We could lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We could find some way to find life on our own. But we are dead and we need a Savior. And spiritually, all are dead. There is no difference from one to the next. Whether you're a self-sacrificial Peace Corps volunteer working amongst refugees in Sudan. You know, in all my work in East Africa, I come across so many absolute pagans, absolute atheists who are giving their lives, serving in refugee camps all across East Africa. It used to blow me away that they had that hunger, that desire to help. So it doesn't matter if you're one of them or if you're, if you're a gangster, like one of the guys I used to work with, and murdering, a rapist, or you're just a selfish womanizer. It doesn't matter, or even if you're just a pretty good person. All are spiritually dead. Not sick. Not mostly dead. Dead. And so why does Paul hit this so hard? Because he's emphasizing it again and again, and he's about to explain it. He says, because we all need a savior, not a doctor, not a self-help guru, not a therapist to get us by. I mean, could you imagine a therapist trying to give counsel to a corpse? But that's what so many try to do, to offer wisdom and maybe some self-help stuff or some other ideas to a corpse that's dying and spiritually dead, thinking that we can somehow inspire it back to life. But nothing we can do on our own could in any way move us towards life because we were dead. No effort put forth can make us alive. Only Jesus can. 
And that's why Paul starts this section this way, of emphasizing the depths of human depravity, that dead people can't help themselves. Sin isn't just a condition that we deal with, it is spiritual death. And we are dead without Jesus. Shannon hammered, hammered last week, it's not just those who, who don't know Christ, but often Christians even keep going back to that ways of death and the ways of the world. Spending most of our time being influenced by the world and, and, and not realizing the power of spending hours and hours a day in front of a television that's just speaking to us death and pain and divisiveness and anger and funky news cycles or in social media constantly telling us to compare ourselves to the world and all the areas we fall and we spend all that time letting the world tell us and define to us what our identity is. And as a result, we move more towards the world and we have to fight to, to, to snorkel out of that sometimes, but we dwell in that place of the world. We dwell back under the prince of power of error of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 that explains. Way too many Christians have a kind of a view of Christianity that Christianity is primarily a belief system. That you just believe the right stuff, that you're good. But Paul says even Satan believed in Jesus. Believing is not enough. What we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our time matters. If we soak our mind and our brain and our body in, in the news cycle and endless social media and TikTok and Instagram of comparison, it will corrupt our soul as it's doing so evidently in our lives, especially in the lives of our youth. It's not spiritual formation, but spiritual deformation. You can't counteract a, a life spent in the world and the brokenness and the pain of comparison and immorality and then expect a few minutes in the morning of reading your Bible in an hour at church on Sunday is in some way going to measure up. So as we saw last week, though, it is Jesus who makes us alive, who brings us from death to life. Ephesians 2.5 says this way, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Now, again, these next few passages are just amazing. Some of the best anywhere found in Scripture that we are raised from death to life. And why did he raise us? He says back in verse 4, out of his incredible love for us. All of this is being done, not out of duty by the Lord. There's no duty at all. It's because he loves us so much and wants to be with us. And as we go through these passages again, I want you to notice the emphasis on the language of together and with. Over and over again, he's going to say that, that we are together with Christ. We are with Christ. We are in Christ. Paul spends all of chapter 1 emphasizing again and again and again, we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. To the point that it kind of, you just start tuning it out, but you can't. It's central to everything Paul is doing in this letter. And now we're going to see why that's so important. When he says that you are in Christ, you're united in Christ, you're together with Christ, that our identity is in Christ. And we hit the passage for today as we're going to see this. Chapter 2, verse 5, and verse 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Christ has saved us. And what else? He's raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly realms or in the heavenly reality in Christ. Now notice that language. God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. We are seated with Christ. And all of this happens in Christ. I mean, the redundancy here is just insane how many times he says this. That God has united us to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So check this out. Paul spends all this time in chapter 1 emphasizing this. 
Because as a result of us being in Christ, wherever Jesus goes, we go. Wherever he goes, we are with him. So wherever he goes, we're in the same place as him, as we're going to see. And this is what baptism is all about. We die, we go under the water, and we die to the old life. We die with Jesus in the old life, and we come up out of the water, alive to new life, resurrected with Christ. So here he says we're raised with him. But remember back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, this would be like a month ago, we read this, what David was teaching. In verse 19 it said this, According to the working of his great might, God is speaking of, or Paul is speaking of God's great work in resurrecting Jesus from the dead. So according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Right. So speaking of the power of God who raises Jesus from the dead and puts him at the right hand in the heavenly places. 21, where is Jesus? Far above, everyone say far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is a name not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So this is Jesus. God takes him and he raises him from the dead and he puts him at his right hand. It says far above all rule, all power, all authority and any name that can be named in this age or in the age to come. That's where Jesus is at. And not only is he at the Father's hand, but he is far above all rule, all power. And not just what happens now or in the past, but any rule, any power, any name that could ever exist in the future. He is far above. And that's awesome. Jesus is amazing. God's great. We can praise him and sing worship songs about that, and we do. But now let's go back to chapter 2. Verse 5, again. Even when we were dead in our transgression, trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. He was dead. We were dead. He brings us together, makes us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And here it is. And God, the Father, raises us with Christ and seats us with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I mean, are you tracking what this is saying? I mean, it's amazing and mind-blowing what he's saying here. It's just insane. So Jesus comes and pays the price for our sin. He takes on our punishment. He dies to pay the price of our sin. And in so doing, we are united in Christ. We become one with Christ. Jesus then raises from the dead by his Father, who places him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms, far above every rule, every power, every authority, every name that can be named. And we can say, again, great for him. But it's not just him. And that's what's so crazy about this. Jesus did not raise to the right hand of the Father alone. Christ's death and his resurrection are not just things that Jesus does for us, as gifts for us. But as we see, he includes us. He includes us in his death, and he includes us in his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. I mean, it's right here. Because we are united with him, he takes us with him into the heavenly realms because we are in Christ. So wherever Jesus goes, we go because we are in Christ. We cannot be separated, including into the very presence of God at the right hand of the Father. Not because of anything we've done, it emphasizes, but because Jesus is there, therefore we are there. We are there because Jesus is there, because we are in Christ. 
And this is what Paul keeps hammering again and again and again and again. We are in Christ. We are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. This is our identity. This is where we dwell. And why are we there? Because Jesus is there. This is not future language. This is past tense language. This is something that's already happened. It is our present reality that we experience now in part. And when we die in eternity, we'll experience in its fullness. But it is something for now. This is our present reality. When we accept the free gift of God's amazing grace, He unites us to Himself. As I said, as David was talking about a couple weeks ago, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. We are united with Christ when we believe. And we dwell with Him in the presence of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and name that can be named in this age or in any age to come. We are no longer dead, but we are alive in Christ. We are with Christ. We are seated in Him. We are far above right now. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that, that God can be that good? I mean, what do we do to deserve this? Nothing. We were actively crucifying him. We were selfishly pursuing our own ends. And while we were dead, Christ made us alive. He did it. We could do nothing because we were dead. He united us to himself and he brings us into the presence of God. And there's so many directions to go with this. I mean, I could spend weeks and weeks just unpacking this. This is the gospel of Jesus bringing death to life to be with him for all of eternity. But there's two specific things I want to hammer on this. And and the first one, that we are far above seated in Christ. Not that we have power, that he does. And it reminds me of a couple of stories I want to share. And one was a few years back, I've been a part of this large missionary organization around the world. And a few years back, we had this uh, prayer team that was going out all the place and praying and doing ministry and evangelism. And the team felt that they were supposed to go to Egypt, to Cairo, to do some ministry there. And as they were praying, the more they prayed as a team, about 15 of them or so, they started getting really scared as they started learning more about Egypt and what was going on and all the demonic warfare that's going on up there. And, and they came and they asked our, our larger community to pray for them. And there's about 15 of them praying and, or sharing. And as the, each person that shared, it seemed like they got more scared and more fearful. Of, we, we feel that, that Satan's going to try and attack us. A couple were saying, we actually think he's going to try and kill us. And they were just like starting to freak out about going and, and, and attacking Satan on the land of Egypt and Cairo and on this trip. And some of them were really scared. And as they were sharing, I was just filled with grief. And I'm like, they have terrible theology, for one. But they don't understand who they are and where they are. Because Paul, and so what I did is I actually grabbed the whole team, took them aside, and I spent a few minutes breaking down this exact passage right here that we're looking at, saying, do you realize who you are and where you are? Because the Bible says that we are seated with Christ far above all rule authority. He tells the Ephesians to not be afraid of living in Ephesus, which was a hundred times worse than anything in Cairo today. I've been, I spent a lot of time in Cairo. Nothing compared to ancient Egypt, or ancient Ephesus, compared to the demonic warfare and all the strongholds going on. And no one, Paul is saying, should live in fear there. They're supposed to live there and raise their families in the midst of that place, because why? They are in Christ. It is not them who should be afraid. It's the demons who should be afraid by them going in. And I got a chance to put this theology in practice a number of times, but one very, very, very specifically a few years back. I was working um, in, in one of the most demonically oppressed places on the globe. I've been to a lot of those, and this one was the worst I've ever seen. Among a group of people that many who were satanic cannibals. No joke. This is real stuff. 
Many of them had magical amulets that were buried under their skin and all this horrific demonic activity. And the witch doctors were filled with so much supernatural power. Many of them actually would murder their own families and consume the bodies and do all sorts of other stuff to gain more power. And I don't want to talk about the powers they had because that just brings glory to Satan. But this is sick, twisted, demonic stuff to the highest order of degree. And when I was there, I was working with a bunch of these guys, and there was a whole group of them that were coming to this training center. That already accept, a number of them already accepted Christ. Many others had not. And among them was one of the chief witch doctors that was there. And they went there, and the, chief, the witch doctor wasn't yet a believer, obviously, but he was curious because of what he was seeing in the lives of all these other people, and so he came as well. But they wouldn't let him stay, the leaders of it, the Christians, because everyone was afraid of him because all of his magic power, I don't quite know how all it works, but it was imbued into this amulet that he wore around his neck. And they said, you cannot come as long as you have that amulet. And so he said, well, I'll leave it with somebody else. And he said, who would take it? And the bishop of the area was there. And he's like, I'm not taking that. And all the leaders are like, nope, I'm not taking it. He's like, someone needs to hold on to this for me. And, and I was an idiot and stupid and naive. So I said, sure, I'll take it. Because Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are far above and seated with Christ. So shouldn't that be a problem? And, uh, and then he goes, okay. And I said, I was filled with, with like naive boldness. And I said, in fact, I'm going to stick it under my pillow and sleep on it tonight. Um, a little arrogant. But... Uh, <laughs> trying to put this theology into practice. And the witch doctor, he freaked out. He says, no, don't do that. Anytime it's apart from me, it turns into a snake and it poisons and kills whoever's around. We're talking crazy, weird, demonic stuff. And I said, ah, I'm in Christ. Went home that night, long story short, put it under my pillow, went to sleep on it. I'm like, ah, that's weird. Um, so I grabbed it and put it on a table on the other side of the room. So just, <laughs> I just prayed like crazy that night. I'm like, I don't know if this is real, but Jesus, I know you are. So I said, Lord, help me to sleep and make this be a testimony wake up the next morning early. I open my door, and there's the witch doctor standing at the door. And he's looking at me with great shout of praise. He says, you're alive. You're alive. And right then and there, he gives his life to Christ. Because he demonstrated the power of God over all the darkness. Right? Amen. That's worth it. Jesus is amazing. In fact, he went home that very day and gathered together all his demonic supplies, including like a skull that he drinks blood out of and all this other stuff. And we had this huge bonfire just burning all the stuff that he had. Wouldn't burn at first. We just grabbed a bunch of tires and threw them on the top and just huge flames going up. It was amazing. God brought death to life. This is real. It's not just words. It's real. We are far above. We are in Christ and we have nothing to fear. The Ephesians do not need to be in fear of the gods or of the goddesses of the, of, of the area. They are in Christ. They do not need to walk in fear. And today, we do not need to live in fear of whatever is controlling our area. And maybe it's politics in the season that, we're, that can bring some angst or progressive agendas or demonic activity. We are in Christ. We do not need to fear these things. We are far above all of it. We are seated with Christ we are above every name, every power, every agenda, every division. All of it because we are in Christ and seated with him. Do you believe that, church? That we are in Christ and seated with him. Do you believe that? And if you believe it, the better question is, do you act like it? Do you live this way? Is this how we live? Or is this just a thought that we mentally ascend to and say, yeah, I accepted Christ 20 years ago and I said a prayer. I'm a believer. I go to church. I read my Bible sometimes. I know this is true, but it has no impact upon our lives. It's a radically different question to say, do we live like it's true or do we just believe it's true? 
Paul is not saying all this. The Ephesians could have some good theology. He's not saying all this to them. So they would say, yeah, we know that's true. No, he's saying it. So it changes their lives. So they would stop living in fear and they would begin with boldness to go out in the midst of this demonically oppressed land and live for Christ and love their neighbors. To put it into practice amongst the people who hated them. Because in that culture, if you weren't worshiping the other gods, they blamed you for everything bad that happened. Your neighbor's crops don't grow. It's your fault because you did not worship Artemis. Your neighbor's child is sick or dies. It's your fault because the gods are angry at you. And so people were constantly dealing with deep, deep anger from neighbors and loved ones because they chose to turn away from the gods and follow Christ. And Paul is saying, you are far above. You do not need to fear that. You do not even need to fear the loss of your own life. He's going to tell them in Revelation. You see, this is not just about saying, I agree, or I concur, but do we live this out? If we truly dwell with the Most High God, does that impact every moment of our days? Right here, right now. If this is real, it should impact every aspect of our thought life, every part of our day. Instead of, like for many Christians, just being a belief system, a get-out-of-hell-free card, my job is just to try and do my best and check in with God every once in a while. This guy Jatani calls it the minimal entry requirements of getting into heaven. I just need to do just enough to not make God angry and appease Him and, and hope that the blessings flow. And, and that's why today anyone that goes through a difficult season, so often they just turn away from Christ because, well, Christianity is supposed to make my life better and give me all this stuff. If it doesn't give us what we want and things are hard, we think, well, it must not be true because we don't actually know who Jesus is. We don't know our identity. But what Paul said is true. And that means that right here, right now, in this moment, we are in Christ. And it means the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit is available to us right now, right here, and every moment of every day. We do not have to live in fear. We can live with boldness as we sacrificially love those around us. We don't need to be scared of election results or live in, in turmoil of those things. We don't need to be scared of political parties. I don't need to be scared of even the loss of my own father. I know I'm with Christ and I know all things are in his hands. Thankfully, most of us are not going to be confronting a lot of cannibalistic, demonically possessed witch doctors, most likely. That won't be the normal of our day. But we will be asked and frequently in, in conversations with loved ones who either following Jesus or aren't, or kids or friends that have walked away from their faith or neighbors, or maybe even loved ones who are, are having different views of gender and sexuality than we have, and, and our, all of our value systems are going to be challenged in different ways, and we are given opportunities daily to say, what does it mean for me to live as though this is true and real and not just an idea or belief system? What does it mean for me to actually dwell with Christ and know that I am an ambassador for Him? I dwell with Him. And in fact, the, the Greek word where it talks about image bearers is actually the word for idolatry, saying you are God's icons, meaning everywhere I I go the very full presence of God goes with me if that is true what Paul is saying how do I love those who are hurting around me how do I love those who are having questions that make me uncomfortable how do I love those that are deconstructing how do I love those even who are other Christians who think or believe differently than me or have different theology or ideas will I extend to them the same measure of grace that Jesus has extended to me 
let us live in this reality. Not just do a Bible study and have some good ideas about what is true. Because this reality that we are in Christ is more real than the flesh on my bones, more real than the chair you are sitting on. Because you see, this body will decay. That chair will decay. But our identity in Christ, the reality that we are with Him, that will not decay. In fact, it only becomes more clear into eternity. That is the true reality. In fact, that's why Paul says in Colossians 3, this incredible passage, verse 1, he says, Since then, you who have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He says, since you've been raised with him, since you are there, set your hearts on him. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, not on the brokenness of the world, but on who Christ is and what he's doing. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this in his translation of the message. Eugene Peterson, incredible uh, Greek a pastor and a Greek scholar, and he does beautifully, and he says this. So there's the same passage in kind of modern language. He says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, he says, act like it. That's what Paul's saying. Act like it. Don't just treat it as an idea, as a concept. That you say, yes, I agree, to mark it up on a value or a belief system that you check off. Act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Pursue the things that Christ is authority of. Pursue the things of Jesus. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you and the things of the world that bring brokenness. But look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the real action is. That's the real reality. The spiritual one that goes on for eternity where Jesus is active in the lives of every single person we know. Every single time we are in a room with anybody else, we know that he is alive and he is actively moving in and around that person's life. We need to put ourselves more aware because we are with him of what he's doing, he says. See things from Jesus' perspective, he translates. Oh, may we have the eyes of Jesus. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. Amen. God's grace is not just about a momentary transaction where our sin is removed and we're given his righteousness as some transaction that happens the moment we accept. It's, well, there is grace. That's not the limit of it. God's gift of grace is active every moment of every day, empowering us to live this life in Christ. I am not a Christian because 30 years ago I said a prayer. More than that, 35. I was eight years old in my room. I had a Fisher-Price record player. If you guys, anyone remembers those things? And I'll never forget, it was a record. I still have it today in my mom's house called Quirky Sing-Along. And the last song was a little record where you sang the words, and I'd play it over and over again. And the last song in the thing was a song of accepting Jesus. And at eight years old, I accepted Jesus in my heart. And that's amazing. But I'm not a Christian because 35 years or How old am I now? 42? 40? Whatever. <laughs> Bad math. <laughs> 35 years ago that I said a prayer. That's not why I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Because every day, I get to wake up and live this life in Christ. I get to experience the nearness of knowing my Father and walking with Him by His empowering presence of His Spirit, enabling me to dwell with Him. Because I can be with the Father and with Him because Christ is there. 
That's why I'm a follower of Jesus. Not because of what happened in the past, because right now I'm following Jesus. I'm being, my faith is not just something of the past, but I'm faithful to him right now, walking with him at this moment, holding on to the reality that we are in Christ. Of trusting him to empower me to live and love like he did and what he's called us to. So we are in Christ. We dwell with him and we are seated with him. And that must be our reality. Amen? That was my side point. The primary point I wanted to make today. I'll make it short. But it's the primary one. And it's the next verse, 2, 8, and 9. I won't be able to do it justice. We'll come back again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All that we have in Christ is because of what Christ has done. Nothing of our own. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Him. But even our faith, he says, is not of our own. Grace and faith and love are God's gift to us. Why? So that we can never boast. He loves us and He wants, He gets all the credit. Nothing we do are ever going to in any way contribute to our own salvation because dead people, remember, can't save themselves. Only a Savior can. Jesus did the work. He paid the price so we didn't have to. He gave us a life that we don't deserve. He doesn't write this to condemn us, but he writes it to show what Christ has done and to celebrate new life, that this is what Christ has done to make us alive. And in fact, the language he uses here in Ephesians is the same language that Jesus uses in the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son is one of a wealthy landlord or landowner whose child turned against him and, and, and wanted to be dead and demanded his inheritance early. And he went away, took all of his inheritance from a very wealthy family and spent it all on alcohol and prostitutes and partying. And after a few years, he was destitute, working with pigs, dreaming he could eat the food, the food of the pigs. His whole life had been destroyed. He had nothing worth living for. He had lived the life that perfectly describes Ephesians 1 through 3. Completely in the world, run by Satan, deserving of wrath. That was where he lived and where he dwelled. Until finally, at a moment of truth, he realized, maybe I could go home and become a slave to my father. Maybe he will accept me. I will never be accepted as a child, but at least maybe I get to be a slave because they live better than I do. So he goes back to the father, and the father sees him, doesn't even let him repent, runs to him, and here's what he tells his servants. He goes, go get the best robe. In verse 23, he says this and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So let the party begin. You see that? The party can begin because he was dead and is now alive. The father has made him alive. Not based on anything the son did. All he did was destroy it. The father came down to someone who had ruined it all and made him alive. A son who had everything and rejected it all. And the father makes him alive. In a sheer act of grace that could never be repaid. I love that great worship song, Reckless Love. It says, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. It, It leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. 
Still, Jesus, you give your life away, right? I couldn't earn this reckless love. I, I couldn't deserve it. But keep, you, give, you keep giving your life to us. And so application, I want us to celebrate new life today. The greatest longing of Jesus is to see people come from death to life and into relationship with him. It doesn't matter if you've never known Jesus or if you've known him your whole life and maybe you've walked away or you've just become one of those apathetic Christians that believes it's about a belief system. Whatever it is, if you're not living the life he's called for you, respond to him this morning and say, Jesus, I want your life. I want to experience more of who you are. It doesn't matter the degree of sin that you've experienced. Maybe some of you are, are, are thinking, you know, I'm not really that much of a sinner. I just got a couple things and a few things going on. And maybe some of you are, are cannibalistic witch doctors. Who knows? Or somewhere in between probably. Regardless, it doesn't matter the degree of sin. He's covered it all. And he's longing for us to leave the dead way of living. As Shannon talked about last week, to not be the walking dead, but to experience life in him. So right now, I want us to take the opportunity to experience life. So if you would just close your eyes and bow your head, I just want to pray and ask Jesus to move. So close your head, eyes, bow your head, and let's just pray for a second. Oh, Jesus. You're amazing, Lord. While we were hurting you and pursuing our own interests, you came and gave your life for us. And you brought us from death to life. There are many here this morning, Lord, who do not yet know the joy of walking with you. Whether they've never accepted you as Lord and Savior, or they have, but they've been following a twisted form of that that's primarily about just their own interests or about believing stuff that's not actually consumed with dwelling in the very presence of the Most High God and partnering with you and seeing your will and glory and beauty and grace poured out into the world. So Jesus, I just pray right now, may you speak to each of us. Like that prodigal father saying, come home. Just return to me. If you've been on the outskirts, just return and right now just say to Jesus, I want to follow you again. I want to experience your life. If you've never known the Lord and called him your Lord and Savior, right now is an incredible opportunity. Just right where you're at to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I don't even know what that means or how to do it, but Lord, I want to experience this life that you've created us for. I recognize that my own life has been living in my own ways and all it produces is death and despair and hopelessness and pain and selfishness. I want to experience your love and to live for you. I want to turn away from the things of the world and experience your life. Just call out to the Lord right now. Jesus is saying, just come to me. Come, all who are burdened and weary and heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. I will give you life. Jesus, speak this morning. Speak to those who are watching online as well. Holy Spirit, draw people into your presence, and may we celebrate life with you, Lord Jesus.
Amen. Amen. God is so good. If you've prayed that prayer and you mean it, whether it's your first time or the hundredth time, talk to someone. I'd love you can come talk to me or one of our staff, but talk to someone. Tell someone what God is doing. And journey along with others and what it means to experience life in Him. And as we finish, I want to say for those that are still following Jesus, I just want to encourage you to heed Paul's words here. That we are called to be in the very presence of God. It's where we dwell. And sometimes we, even though it's our spiritual reality, we somehow just ignore that, most Christians do, for most of their lives. But we must live out this identity of God, what He says about us, not what the world says about us. And when we do, we can live out of that grace daily. We can live out of our new identity, our true identity, and it will draw people to Christ, and not because of fancy words, not because of bringing church to church and seeing good worship or a good preacher, but as each of us live in love like Jesus. I want to finish with this one quote from a scholar I love, and on his commentary on this passage, he's talking about living in this reality. I want to finish with this. He says, what if people experienced Christians as those joined to the loving giver, Jesus? What if? Imagine if. What if other of those who don't know Jesus saw grace extended from people who had experienced grace? What if? Imagine that. If people who don't know Jesus experience grace extended to them by Christians to the same degree to which Christ extended it to them. Imagine if that is what Christians were known for. And how well we extend the love and the grace of Christ that we have received and we extend it to others. Instead, what do we often do? We look at Ephesians 1 through 3 saying that we were in the depths of depravity in those places and we judge people for being there. So often, oh, look at what they're doing. They're in sin or immorality or all these other choices and we judge them for being there rather than recognizing that Paul wrote that so we could get to verse 4 through 10, which is but the grace of God is pursuing them with everything he has and he laid his life down for them and not from a distance, but he gathered them together, drew them out from the pit, took him with them into the heavenly places for all of eternity. This is the heart of God. How as believers can we not share the same heart for the lost and the broken and the hurting when he's extended that grace to us? We must extend it to others to the same measure. He says, what if they saw evidence of the movement from disobedience to obedience and from death to life? What if people who don't know Jesus saw in Christians a faith worth having? Evangelism should just be a natural expression of the being joined, of a life joined to a loving God, the sharing of a faith worth having. Amen? Amen. We're going to take communion as we finish this morning. Sorry, it's been a few weeks since I've been up here, maybe a little more energy than I was supposed to. <laughs> Next week I might bring it down a level, we'll see. Um... As we come to take communion, we take this because it's a command of Christ. And on Jesus' final day before being crucified, he gathered together his disciples for a final meal with them. And he, as he gathered them together, he, he broke the bread at the meal and he, he grabbed a clap of wine and he, he said, please take this, this broken body that is of my body represented as broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. 
And we've been talking about this is the body that was broken for us. Not because we did anything to deserve it, but because of his insane love for us. That we could experience life in him. And so let's take the bread. Remember of what Christ has done for us. And then he took the wine. He said, this cup represents my blood that is shed for you. He said, drink this in remembrance of me. And so we take this cup as a member of Jesus' blood that was shed, that he paid the death that we deserved so that we could have life in him. And so we died with him, we are resurrected with him, and now we dwell with him in the heavenly places because of his life being given for us. Let's take the cup. Amen. Jesus, oh, Father, thank you for your love. Paul just keeps jumbling those words over and over again of your mercy and your grace and your love, and it's overwhelming, Lord, how good you are. Your grace is so amazing, Jesus. As we sang this song, may our eyes and hearts be fixed upon you, as Paul says in Colossians 3. May you move our eyes just from the things of this world and of ourselves to recognize that you are at work. Not just in salvation, but in every moment of every day, empowering us to live and love like you, Jesus. Thank you.